You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Trip Lanier, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. It was the beginning of the end. I could feel the tears drop down my cheeks as I sat in the darkened theater. We were watching a documentary about what physicians go through in today's healthcare system. And I was doing my best to rub the tears away. My wife was sitting next to me and I was trying to hide the emotion that had come flooding in. And by the time the lights went up, I had composed myself. And the director of the movie stood up at the lectern and commanded all the physicians in the crowd to rise. And then she started to clap and a standing ovation spread throughout the theater. And it felt really good. It was like all those expectations from my childhood, my own goals and dreams, the expectations of my family, everything that I had built my identity around came to a head in that one moment, and I felt loved. I felt supported. I almost felt deified for five minutes. That's it. Five minutes, and then I went back to feeling normal again. Those five minutes came at a cost. What I had experienced to get to this vaunted place was often unpleasant. I mean, I spent all of high school and college studying. I locked myself in the library during medical school. And then during residency, I went nights without sleeping. As a practicing physician, I held people's lives in my hand. And with that came all the shame and worrying and fear for that five minutes. It was the beginning of the end. You better bet from that day on, I decided to spend a lot more time enjoying the experiences and being engaged in things I like to do and much less time worrying about the goal. 
Trip Lanier is a professional coach, author of this book, Will Make You Dangerous, and host of the New Man podcast, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Trip, welcome to Earn and Invest. Thank you. Wow, what a powerful story. I'm still sitting with it. It really came from reading your book. And so we're going to dive into that because a lot of these memories came to me as I was reading chapter after chapter and thinking about the importance of goals versus experiences. But before we get to that, I have a burning question I have to ask you. Did you really go to a strip club with David Lee Roth? I did. Yeah. I, you have to tell <laughs> I was me the like, story. Where is that? I was like, where is that on a, oh yeah, that's a video. Okay. I was like, yeah, wow, you got to tell me how that happened. <laughs> One of my dear friends worked with David and and so it was just, one of the, hey, why don't you come down to the studio, meet Dave and listen to some new songs. And oh, by the way, why don't we just go across the street to the strip club? So you know, this was a long time ago, back when things were a little bit different. But yeah, that, that got to happen. And David Lee Roth is known as kind of a madman, but he was kind of subdued at the strip club. Is that right? I don't know. Subdued. I, I, I just found him to be really grounded in that moment, at least. You know, it, I think... I talked about in the video that I posted that you think he, you know, here's the guy that has his ass, has wears pants with the ass ripped out of him, right? He's just going to be nuts and bonkers and bouncing off the walls and everything. He's actually very grounded. He was a gentleman and, and, uh, wasn't calling much attention to himself at all. And, uh, so it was nice. We sat in the booth and listened to Van Halen stories and, you know, watched the ladies. You have made a career now of coaching. And in fact, really coach men about men's issues. How did you fall into this field? Essentially, I had gone through a big, big shift, let's just say. It's not the quite, wor- quite the right word, but in my 20s, I had my own company. I basically set out to do so much of what I had planned to do for myself professionally and went through a big emotional thing that finally dealt with my mother's death. When I was 13, she died and, and I didn't deal with it. I didn't, didn't have anything, you know, any kind of understanding or any kind of real support around that. So in my mid twenties, whole world goes upside down. I finally experienced this loss and come out the other side, again, glossing over a lot of details there, but come out the other side, like, who am I really? What is life really about? I, there's so much to learn here. There's so much to experience and that led me on a path to spiritual growth, personal growth, you know, just wanting to go grow and explore. And what I found to be most potent was being with other men and not, not watching football or not sitting at the bar kind of thing, but actually being in real conversations with other men. And that I just found my home there. And so that was, I just want to spend more time doing that, having those types of conversations. What are we really here to experience? What are we really here to give? What are we really here to provide others and, and, and before, this, before the end inevitably comes? And uh, so going from these types of men's groups and that kind of work into coaching was a natural transition. I connect very much with your story. In my introduction, I talked about being a physician and what that felt like. Part of what propelled me to becoming a physician was my father, who was a physician, died when I was eight years old. And I had some of that reckoning in my 20s, too. So I kind of understand what that feels like. And I really connect with that story. Anyone who's gone through that, who's lost a parent, 
can look back at their life and see how profoundly it affects their trajectory of who they become and what they do with their lives. So you talk about feeling comfort in this space hanging around men. And I want to talk about the name of your podcast, because I think it brings up an important point. It's called The New Man Podcast, but then the subline is Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. And it kind of reminds me of the dichotomy I think men face a lot, right? Versus one extreme or the other. And I actually found that same dichotomy in your writing. You write about these incredibly intellectual topics. This is a very well thought out book that you wrote. On the other hand, you have a moment of being crass at times when you're telling stories. And that also reminds me of that same duality. I feel like men today face these two extremes. They don't exactly understand where they fall or better yet, they don't know how to be both. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is how do we become an integrated male? I think we call it the new man, the integrated male. It was just, oh, it was kind of boring to me. But I think on an emotional level, we kind of get like, oh, well, there's the macho jerk. I don't really want to be that guy. I also don't want to be this new age wimp. This guy's a doormat for anything either. So what transcends that? What transcends and includes the best qualities of somebody with a spine? What transcends and includes the, the qualities of somebody with a heart? And somebody's got, so it's really this, you know, brains, balls, and heart. Thing. And it's like, okay, well, what does that look like for each one of us? Instead of, okay, here's this new ideal. I'm going to be, I'm going to fit, I'm going to play this role. But that's not really me. That's not who I'm becoming in this lifetime. And so for me, especially the work that I do with coaching clients is how do you play your own game? Who, if we really shut up and listen, there's somebody that is trying to be lived you and as you in this lifetime. And you're, this is going to impact the relationships you have. This is going to relationship, uh, it's going to impact the work that you do in the world, it's everything. But most of us are living with another question, which is, what should I do? Tell me what I should do. And so when we shift those questions, who am I becoming versus what should I do? There's a, we really start to, to lean into a, another really powerful way to live. I like that. Who am I becoming versus what should I do? Again, it gets this back to this idea of looking at experiences versus outcome you called your book, This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Why did you go with that title? And, and I guess the opposite would be, are we playing it too safe as men in society today? I think so. You know, when I, when I talk to people who have done really well for themselves, many of my clients have, have already done really well for themselves. They were like me. They, they, they accomplished what they set out to do, or they, they kind of, or they got a glimpse of, wait a second, I can see where this is heading and this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be, much like the conversation you, you the story you told at the top of the, the conversation here. We come back to this sense that, well, then what's holding me back? What's holding me back? And that's what we explore in the book is to go through the things that, wait a second, I'm not really going to die here, but it feels really dangerous to do something that would jeopardize my sense of comfort. It feels really dangerous to maybe invest some money in myself instead of you know, putting it towards a new kitchen that we can recoup if we sell the house. It seems really dangerous to say, you know what, I'm going to shift what I do in the world or how I, you know, make my living. Well, what will they think of me? I, I, my, my parents told me I had to be a doctor growing up or, or I, my community expects me to be this other person. All of that stuff is what we've adapted to believe in our modern cushy society is danger. And if we zoom out and we really take a look at it, which we very rarely do, we can start to see, well, 
is this really that dangerous? Is it really worth getting to the end of my life and saying, well, I, I played it safe really well. I mean, is that really what it was all about? And I, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I, 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 and also, I don't want to be reckless. It's not about being reckless. It's not about being hedonistic or narcissistic. It, but it is about listening to that thing and saying, you know what? If I'm really going to answer that question, who am I becoming? Then I'm going to be led into places that feel dangerous. You mentioned the word cushy. And it really begs the question if today's man is a little bit soft, right? We're not out there hunting on the Sahara we're not facing true dangers every day. Have we evolved into non-risk takers? I think so. Yeah, I think, I, I think if we really look at what success as, as it's mainly looked at these days is it's more comfort. It's less risk. I mean, look at what we're, we're going to buy. I'm going to go buy a better couch with a bigger TV, more, more efficient air conditioning, all of the things. I'm going to make sure that my finances are more stable, more, more taken care of. And then I'm also going to make sure that everybody loves me, right? This is the social media or, or it's whatever status thing I do in my, in my world with country clubs and that kind of stuff. So we're seeking these places where we're more and more walled off and more and more shored up. And it doesn't invite us to be risk takers. It doesn't invite us to say, you know what? I've got a hunch. I, I'm, I'm tired of feeling trapped or I'm tired of feeling drained. I'm going to go explore something else. It's like, no, I better not. I better just stay with the what, what I know and what people expect of me. One theme that's repeated throughout the book is that there are these three threats or fears that tend to hold us back. How essential is this to moving forward to understand these fears and what are they? Well, let's talk about what those fears are. There's a lot of fears in our life, right? And, and there's some substantial real fears. But most of the time when I'm working with somebody to improve their relationships, to improve, you know, put themselves on a different track professionally, one with more meaning, one with more alignment to their values, the things that we come up with is that might require a lot of work. That's going to be uncomfortable, right? Or that may require an, an uncomfortable conversation that, oh, okay, we can't do that. Or that's going to be risky to my time or my energy, or my money. I really don't want to put my time and energy at, or money at risk here. So let's, let's not do that. And then the third one, which is really the big one, is this, this sense of identity, this status that we have. I'm used to making a certain amount, being seen as a certain person in my, in my world. I can't do anything to jeopardize that. That's, that. That can feel really dangerous to us. So that comfort, risk, or certainty, and then that third one being self-image, those are the three big ones that I, I know without a doubt are going to come up when somebody comes to me and says, Trip, I want to go do XYZ in my lifetime. I know we're going to bump up against that stuff consistently, not just once, but over and over and over again. Let's talk about identity. You opine in your book about experts that push success in their readers. And you say, but unfortunately, many of these well-meaning authors and experts are really just trying to help us get better at playing a game we can't win. Are we too worried about success unto itself? I think there's a version of success that most of us buy into, which is we just need a little bit more of this, or we just need to get to this place and there's a finish line. So one of my coaches, Phil Stutz, calls this exoneration. And it's this belief that if we could just get this one thing handled, then we're done. 
we've reached the VIP section of life. We've, we've reached this section where there's a velvet rope and then it's easy street, baby. We don't have any more problems to, to worry about. And what I see in so many of these books, and unfortunately a lot of them get sent to me because they want to be interviewed on the podcast. It's, it's, they're trying, they're buying into this game either unknowingly or knowingly saying, yeah, if you buy my thing, I'm going to teach you this thing and then you'll be set for life and you'll be fine. And I'm just tired of it. I'm sick of that being propagated out in the world because people do the things that they think they should do and get to this place and like, really? That's it? That's all it was? Five minutes of adoration? I did all of that for five minutes? Like we've all have these versions of the story and we thought there was really going to be this kind of summit or this finish line and then it would all be, like I said, smooth sailing from there on out. But I'm tired of that recipe for huge disappointment and then a crash. What have I done with my life? What, who am I really? And it's a, it's a sad place to land. And that crash is exactly where I was after receiving that round of applause in that movie. I like to call it the achievement treadmill. And a lot of people talk about the hedonic treadmill. You mentioned it in your book, this idea that we adapt to change and it becomes regular. So a lot of times when we're talking about the hedonic treadmill, we're talking about buying things. And the more expensive things you buy, you're actually happy with them for a short period of time. And then it's already to buying the next thing. I feel like achievements are the same. And I found this in my medical career that every time I summited and achieve something instead of being happy or feeling like life had taken care of herself or in your words that I was set for life. Instead, I was already going to that next achievement. And it was a very unsettling place, which I don't think fits really well into our narrative of how we're supposed to be. The idea is you're supposed to hit these achievements and that's supposed to be fulfilling. Well, I think, I think that's it from that kind of survival mentality which is once I get to this place, I can finally let off the gas. I can finally stop outrunning this big, bad monster that's going to get me, right? Whatever that thing is. I want to be really clear. Going and achieving stuff can be really fun. It can be really enlivening. But when we attach our sense of well-being to that achievement, or we attach this belief that says, I can finally enjoy my life once this is done. I'll finally give myself permission to, to be who I truly am, to you know, maybe explore the other things I want to do. I think that's the trap where we're going to finally feel whole. We're going to finally feel complete. That's the trap, which is different than I'm already coming from a place of wholeness and completeness. Now, what do I want to create? Oh, let's go knock this thing out. Let's go build this business. Let's go do these wonderful things in the medical field. So I want to be really clear. The goals themselves are not bad. The achievements are not bad, but when we're coming from that place of lack or kind of low self-esteem, or I'm not okay, or the world's not going to be okay unless I get this thing done. Now we're setting ourselves up for that trap. I like to call that the once I have syndrome, right? How many times have you finished that sentence? Once I have this job or this title or this possession, then I will be. And so it becomes part of your identity. The, the getting there or having the thing starts becoming part of your identity. And that, that never is healthy, right? Because it isn't truly who you are. It's just something you've achieved or something you've bought. Exactly. Exactly. And how, I don't know, hopefully you haven't done this, but I've been to funerals and thought, you know, he was on that path. He was on that path. One day he was going to do X, Y, Z. And I always felt like I, it would have been great if he could have given that gift sooner, if he would have found a, a way to get around that excuse. And I think that's a big driver. It's, again, it's another form of fear 
But on the other end, it's just like, well, we're not getting out of this thing alive. So what are we waiting for? It doesn't mean, like I said, but it doesn't mean we got to blow everything up. I think that's where we go into this either or mentality. But like what I, what I do with my clients is like, let's just find little baby steps. Let's find little ways for you to step into that thing so that, that you have the satisfaction that you're no longer waiting. Being a hospice physician, which is what I spend most of my doctoring time doing now, I'm always struck by the fact that almost no one on their deathbed says, I wish I made more money. In fact, most of them don't say, I wish I got that job. It's more like, I wish I spent more time with the people I loved, or I wish I tried that thing I was always afraid to do. But rarely is it the things that we seem to strive for now. We've done a good job then of defining a little of what gets in our way. It's this being in this survival mode and it's working off this threat-based idea of what we should do and not do. So how do we turn this around, right? So clearly this is an issue and this is probably inhibiting us from doing what we want to do. How do we get past that survival mode and start growing again? And I think you touched on it. I think that we've, we first have to zoom out and quit bullshitting ourselves that we're going to live forever. And there's this indefinite amount of time that we have, and we're going to get around to it later. I, I, I walk the reader through an exercise in the, in the book where I say, go ahead and look at the ceiling, lay down on the floor. Cause that's probably going to be the last thing you see. And let's, let's imagine you're on your deathbed right now. Let's imagine these are your last moments. Let's walk through this exercise that you just, you just talked about so beautifully. Are you in alignment now? Or are you waiting? Do you have a sense that there's something waiting? Even if it's just, it's not totally clear, but there can be a gnawing. There can be this rock in our shoe. Something's off. I'm waiting to do that thing. And instead of numbing ourselves to that, hey, you know what? Maybe just I'm going to distract myself with social media or drama that's going on in the news or whatever. We can get curious. What is it that I am waiting to do in my life? How am I waiting to show up with my loved ones? Or maybe there's something that I want to create or lean into. That begins the conversation, but it's not over. It's not set it and forget it. It's an ongoing process where we confront our mortality. And I can find, I find it enlivening. It's like, oh yeah, let's use that. Let's use that to get in the game and, and quit messing around. And I find it's just more empowering when we, when we use death in that way, in a really empowering way, not in a, in a sad way, but just like, yeah, let's use it. Let's, 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 let's use that as horsepower to get going here. And then and then we can start to tap into, we can start to see that what we're scared of is, is usually quite small in comparison. One of the dichotomies you come back to over and over again in the book is this difference between goals and experiences. And I've dealt with this in my own life as I've moved further away from being a doctor and started exploring more about who I want to be as a person I would put it in terms of process and product. For the first half of my life, I was always so focused on the product. And now as I take on new projects, I really try to focus on the process unto itself. How am I going to live a better life, be more me, fulfill some of what I feel is my deeper purpose while I'm doing something as opposed to it depending on what I create in the end. Beautiful. How do we move to that place? So step-by-step, I think you said, yes, kind of, we put this into perspective of what it's going to feel like on our deathbed. There are things we can do physically, right? We can eat well, we can meditate, but what are some of the other steps we can start using to 
frame this thought process so that we can really start to make change in our life? Well, I think we can take any one of the goals that we have, whether it's to make a million bucks, 8 million bucks, whatever it might be, or we're going to cure cancer, we're going to do anything, whatever those, those outcome oriented goals are. And my guess is that if you accomplish that thing and you still felt trapped and you still felt drained and you felt isolated from the people in your life, you felt alone, like nobody got you and you felt bored or you felt overwhelmed, if you accomplished that thing and everybody was kissing your ass and you were like, something's off here. Something is wrong. <laughs> that was you, right? That okay. was me with doctoring. Totally. Yeah. Right. So if we, I can, I can, I don't know anybody. It's like, yeah, no, I want to get to the other side of this and I want to be bored and trapped and drained. And I want all of that stuff. Pilot on. So what does that tell us? Well, what if we just kept it really simple here? And we said, well, instead of feeling trapped, maybe that means I want to be free on the other side of this. Instead of drained, I want to be alive. Instead of isolated, I want to be connected. I want to be loved for who I am. Instead of bored or overwhelmed, I want, I want true deep peace of mind. And so I said, well, maybe that's what we're playing for all along. That in our mind, when we set this goal and we really knock it out of the park, that there's this, there's the software in our brain has already said, you know what? That's what's going to have me feel free. That's what's going to have me feel alive. That's what's going to have me feel deeply loved. That's what's going to bring me peace of mind. And so I offer, I say, well, let's just keep that in. Let's keep that right up front. Let's put that in the heads up display from the get-go. And then we may find that the pathways to those experiences that allow those experiences in our life may shift and change over time. But ultimately, we know that we're playing for freedom, aliveness, love and peace. And that becomes our compass. And then we may have multiple missions in our lifetime that serve those experiences. And we can go be, we can go create achievements and have other goals, but we ultimately want to come back and say, are they in service of freedom, aliveness, love, and peace? I want to underline that point because I think it's so utterly important in your book. When we move away from goals to experiences, the purpose of our experiences, what we're trying to get out of them is that feeling of freedom, aliveness, love, and peace. And I think that theme carries throughout the book. It sounds great, but of course, in life, there's resistance and we create our own resistance. And we also have to do with external resistance. What are some of the ways you suggest to work with that, especially internally, right? Because we are, we are creatures that do not like to change. Exactly. It makes total sense. I think one of the things is what <laughs> I'm amazed, like when people encounter resistance, it's a surprise. <laughs> it's like it's like going to the gym and feeling this sweat and this burning sensation and be like oh hold on hold on <laughs> something's off here and it's like no that's part of it that's part of the growth process is that we're going to go into some places and this part of our brain is going to flip out right and be like i don't think we should do this i'm not ready we need more we need more information we're, we need to we need to get the perfect plan and make sure we can see how everything's going to work out. This looks like it's going to be a little uncomfortable. People are just going to criticize me and they're not going to like this. We, we better just hold off for a while. That's resistance. And resistance is seductive. Stephen Pressfield wrote a wonderful book called The War of Art, where he goes deeply into this concept. And But it's something I deal with every day in my own life, but also with my clients. And so we just welcome it. We just know it's going to be a part of the process we, we, welcome, we, we give it a seat and say, come on, we're going on, you're, you're going on the ride with us, but we're not going to let you stop us. We're not going to let you gum up the gears. 
What I love about the book is when you talk about resistance, you bring it back to its elements. And somewhere deep down inside, it comes back to those three fears and threats. So we hit the resistance and our first thought is, I'm going to die or I'm going to lose all my money or I'm going to lose my business. And part of the process is walking those back and really questioning and saying, okay, is that really true? Like I have these deep held fears, these threats to my safety, but is that reality? And it sounds like when you can identify them, it automatically becomes easier. That would probably be a wonderful be a wonderful audiobook if I could go back to all the recordings of my clients and when they tell me it's like, yeah, this will definitely kill me or this will what you could hear the excuses. It's easy when you're on the outside and they're not your excuses. You could be like, that is so crazy that anyone would believe that. But when it's you, it feels real. And all it is is just underlying our commitment to comfort, certainty, and looking good. In the first half of the show, Tripp and I talk about the three main fears that hold us back. After the break, we discuss what the right amount of risk to take is. But first... You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Have you been checking us out on Facebook? That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. You will find there a discussion with our community about topics similar to what you hear on the podcast, whether it is personal finance, the current news of the day, occasionally politics, what have you. You can hear it on the Earn and Invest podcast Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Join us there and become a part of our community. We can't wait to see you. And I have to admit, I took a little bit of a shortcut. So when I talk about my own path, when I decided it was time to stop being a doctor and making all this change in my life, I happened to have financial security. It was something I had built up beside what I was doing. So it was very easy in that sense to try to work on my identity and purpose because I knew I had the financial security to move forward. But financial security shouldn't necessarily be a reason that you don't start taking risks. Is that right? I think there's a, I think there's a sweet spot here. I, I, you know, there's, there's this kind of romantic notion of follow your passion and build your dreams and all that kind of stuff. And I've watched a lot of people just terrify themselves and, and really put their nervous system into a, a really uncreative place. 
So I'm far more, I'm, I'm much more of a fan of consistency than, than intensity. And it doesn't need to look heroic to do, to do these things. There's places where I've been in my life where the financial un- uncertainty was not a very creative place. It actually pushed me to do things that I, to be more bold. But on the other hand, I think if we really want to be in a creative place, we've got to recognize that there's, A, we want to challenge, is this really true that, that we're going to be on the street you know, in six hours if I, if I do X, Y, Z? But on the other hand, it's just a, wait a second, I don't have to be stupid about this either. I don't have to be rash. And then finding that sweet spot in there. And I think that's, that's important for each one of us as we go through it. Yeah, you, you've mentioned in the book, too, that purpose is not the end-all, be-all, and purpose changes over time, too. So sometimes going for that purpose or passion play can actually lead you to a place of weakness as opposed to a place of strength. I think purpose, by and large, the way most I hear most people talk about purpose is largely egoic. And what I mean by that is it, cre- it gives our ego a story we like to tell about ourselves my purpose in life is to save puppies from whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's just, and that's who I am. And I can put that on my LinkedIn page and and I'll be admired by everybody. It's different than the process. Like you mentioned, right? If you think of of what we've been talking about, ultimately the purpose is to come back to these experiences of freedom, aliveness, love, and peace, the sense of wholeness that we have. Then we have missions. We have missions that stem from that place, but overall throughout our entire lives, it's always going to come back to freedom, aliveness, love, and peace. That will always be rather the purpose of why we do what we do, why we have a family, why we get married, why we choose to live in this place, why we choose to have this career. Beyond survival, beyond just being comfortable, beyond just being safe, beyond just looking good, ultimately we want that freedom, aliveness, love, and peace. And then we can recognize, okay, there's lots of pathways to that within my lifetime. You use the term missions. Are, are missions different than goals? And if so, how? I don't think they have to be. I think goals can be just regular, rather singular. You know, maybe, maybe goals fit within a mission, right? So if I'm going to start a business, then I might have six or seven different goals within that to do that. I don't, I, I'm not really hung up on the, the, the words that we use, but I, I do like to unplug from this purpose concept because so many of us really somewhere got in there. I don't know if it was these inspiration posters or what, but they really got this, got wrapped around the axle around, well, my life's kind of shit unless I I don't know my purpose. I will tell you my interpretation from reading your book is that missions seem much more experience-based as opposed to quote unquote success-based. That could be. That could be. You know, I've had I've had lots of missions in my life. I had mission early on was to okay, how do I fund my lifestyle so I can be a musician? I've had missions like okay, how do I fund my lifestyle so my family and I can live wherever we choose, right? So, you know, it it it, it gives a focus. Like, what are we doing here? How do we want to live? What do we want to experience in life? Okay, now we've got to set up the parameters so that we can support that. That's not easy. It's not easy to do those things. It's going to be challenging. It's going to require us to be mature, to be adults and to be disciplined as we go through this. I know we're talking a lot about emotions here and having a, and to identify the emotions that are, that are first and foremost, but it's not flippant. It's not hedonistic and only doing what feels good. The people that I work with, this path that we're talking about is going to challenge us to have difficult conversations, to do hard work over time, and to, and to be willing to get over ourselves if, it, if people don't understand what we're doing. These are emotional conversations. And in fact, one of the first responses probably for many is anxiety. Talk about anxiety a little bit. Is that a good thing or a bad thing as you're starting to make these changes? I think anxiety is uh, information. 
So I, I like to look at emotions just as, as something to be curious about. So when I'm anxious, usually it's, it's like, okay, what, what do I, well, Chip Conley came on my show a while back. You can look up, he's done some great work. Chip Conley says that anxiety is uncertainty times powerlessness, right? So you, you don't just add those things together, you multiply those things together. So when you get a sense of uncertainty and you multiply that with a sense of powerlessness, now we've got a real fire going and that's our anxiety. So how do we pick that apart? Well, if I'm in uncertainty, what can I be certain of? What can I, what can I go learn about? What can I start asking questions? Where can I get information? And whether that's within myself or it's talking to others. And most of us are, and we feel powerless. It's because we're stuck in a place of looking for blame. We're looking for places to point the finger instead of asking myself, well, what, how can I take responsibility? What's within my own power here to make a change? I found that massaging those two things and getting curious about what's within my power or letting go of what's without outside of my power or getting curious about what I know or what I don't know and, and using that as pathways to go exercise my power can greatly reduce the anxiety. I like the fact that you use the term sense of power because I definitely get this feeling that powerlessness is something that we can think through and change how we feel about it. Like you said, you always have power over some things in your life. So it's a matter of focusing on what you do have power on and maybe in the sense, letting go of what you don't. Anxiety is one side of the spectrum. The other side is play and lightening up. People get very serious when they talk about what they want to do with their life. You seem to think that maybe that inhibits them as opposed to helps them. Absolutely. Yeah, think about that, right? Uh, uh, how many of us use money as the bottleneck for doing what we want to do in life? Right? It's like, oh, I can't make money doing that, so I'm not going to pursue it. Or that's going to cost a lot of money, so I'm not going to pursue that. We find, a, we find ways to justify whether something's worthwhile. And money tends to be this great you know, way to kind of say it's okay or it's not okay. I think if we come back to those conversations that you have with your patients in hospice care, it's like, I don't know if that's really, was it? I imagine they would have rather that they, they had more fun in their lifetime. And fun can be a dirty word for some people. They just really think it's flippant and childlike and whatever. But I, I think when we're in a, in a playful state, it doesn't mean that we're being frivolous. I think that it means that we're more creative. We have access to parts of our thinking, parts of our creativity that are not there when we're convinced that we're about to die or, or that everything's about to, to go under. I, I like that relaxed sense of play that comes along and says, yes, let's tackle this problem together. Let's go in this thing. Knowing that even if it, if it, if it sinks, we're probably still going to be okay. We'll pick this up and we can use it for something else. I can't tell you how long... I waited to explore writing and podcasting and public speaking because somewhere in the back of my mind, I kept on saying, well, you can't make money doing that. You make money being a doctor. So you should continue this hectic lifestyle of being a doctor. And although every chance you get, you start writing or doing something more creative, that's for that extra little me time when you're not busy making a living. And it's funny how we tell ourselves this story because maybe it's just scary to flip that around and say, maybe I can do something where I do lighten up or I have joy, and yet it still can be concrete work that does produce money or a career or other things. We don't give ourselves that permission, maybe. 
I think it's where we've internalized an external authority. What do I mean by that? The voices we heard growing up were, get your homework done, get this thing. You know, you got all these things you got to do. And I don't think that was a bad thing, right? There was like, but it's, it wasn't balanced with, and go enjoy what you have to do. As adults, we grow into this world and tend to, it becomes one or the other. I think as mature, like maturity really means that I can be responsible. I can be disciplined. I can make sure the bills are paid and there's food in the fridge, but I also am going to play. I'm also really going to enjoy my life that it doesn't have to be a one or the other. Either I do my homework or I go outside and play. I think that's what's missing is that kind of both and mentality that it's, it's just one or the other. And it's unfortunate. It gets back to that duality we were talking about with the name of your podcast. It's like you're either this jerk on one side or you're this wimp on the other. I know as a man, I feel like it's sometimes hard to see those shades of gray or, or as you were saying, to be the both and. You can be bold and innovative and sensitive. And it's like, no one taught me that maybe as a kid. And it's taken years to realize that one doesn't detract from the other. Not if you take the best of both, right? And transcend. Because a lot of us think, well, I've got to be, I've got to water down both in order. It's, 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 it's more on this kind of lateral plane. I'm a little bit of a wimp and I'm a little bit of a jerk. (laughs) No, (laughs) you're missing it, right? It's about, okay, I'm going to be sensitive. I'm going to be open but I'm also going to be firm in what I say and what I think and what I do. Right. So there's that, that sense of it. We don't have a lot of role models for that. There's not a lot of talk about that. It's, it's, we live in a pretty, it's, it's comfortable to be in a black and white world, but I think when we really get in there, especially if we really get to know one another, we live in those shades of gray, as you said. I know one of my mental blocks certainly was this idea of getting over myself. I know I had these ideas of who I was supposed to be, And that was acclaimed and recognized. I was going to change my community. I was going to change my world. And at some point, I got to thinking that I could be the greatest doctor in the world and change society. But in 50 or 100 years, probably no one would remember me. And so maybe this process of getting over yourself is important. Do you think we place too much importance on acclaim? Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. And the only reason why I say that is that I find it's where the most suffering comes from. When we're worried about how we're seen, we're worried about how we're perceived, we're worried about whether somebody thinks this or think that, or it's, it's just so much struggle goes there. Unfortunately, I know of men in our lifetime that grew up with this script that says, you know, you can't be weak. And instead of getting help, some of them will choose to end their own lives. It gets that far right? Where they can't be helped. At least it's like they'll end their life, but at least they weren't weak, right? At least they didn't ask for help or get help. You realize how insane that is, right? That we go through this stuff. That's all on ego level. There's nothing in there that was going to kill that guy if he went and got some help, but it would, it would threaten his ego. It would threaten his self-image to do that. Luckily, I think that as we're, as we're maturing and as we're evolving here, we're starting to see through these old scripts. It's easy to look back on generations before and see how these scripts are are going by the wayside, but it's things like that where we can see just how much the, the importance we put on ourselves. And I'm raising my hand here. Like we all do it. It's just part of the programming that we have, but it's great if we can start to catch it and be like, okay, there's that thing I do 
where I'm going to make it seem that it's really important <laughs> or I'm really important here or I need to be really important here, uh, which is a lot different than what do I value? What do I stand for? Those stay constant, but the aspect of that I need to be acclaimed or recognized or adored or validated, maybe not. What if not? Like, think about how much f- more free and powerful you'd be if you did, weren't, didn't give a damn. Do you think society is evolving to allow men to be less quote unquote strong to be well, more I would, I would, you, I would watch that word. I, I think, I think we get stronger when we're willing to go into the places that scare us. So I, I, I wouldn't, maybe the, maybe another word. I just want to, maybe isn't is that one. Yeah. It, it's maybe tough. I'm not sure what the word is because there's this, there's this idea in society of what a strong man is Quote, and I'm using quotes again because I yeah. think the idea is actually not appropriate. And I think that's a lot of what you talk about in the book. There is something called strength, but we've mangled it, especially I think maybe in the 50s and 80s and 2000s. The question is, are we evolving? Is the boy born in 2020 not going to have such huge pressure from society to show those traits? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I see, well, you know, I'm in a world where I'm, I'm surrounded by guys that are walking this talk and doing this work as best as they can. So I'm, it's skewed for me. But what I, do so, what I do see when I go out and about, I see a lot more young people with both parents or with a dad, at least, right? Where that was the norm. Like, I, I don't know how many older men, guys that were my dad's or my grandfather's age that were like, yeah, I had, I hung out with my dad twice. My dad told me he loved me once. Like, are you kidding me? And I just see a lot, lot less of this kind of walled off castle of a man and somebody who's way more accessible and way more willing to say, Hey, I love you. And I care about you. It's clunky. Evolution is really (laughs) clunky. But I see it, I do see it happening. And I, I, I'm very hopeful for that, that aspect of it. You make a point in the introduction to your book to address the elephant in the room by asking, is this book only written for men? How many of these lessons translate to women? Are, are, is the story the same? Are the lessons the same? I think so. I think the, I think so. Absolutely. You know, I wrote it knowing that my daughter was going to read it one day. I wrote it having my wife read multiple versions of the book. It was all about what would, would land. I just chose to write it specifically for the people that I'm most used to talking to, which is men. So a lot of people with us today are struggling with these issues. So if you are a young 20-something man dealing with these type of issues besides going and buying this book will make you dangerous. What is kind of like the first concrete step someone can take to start moving in the right direction? Well, I think it's about, first is just recognizing what are you putting in? It's garbage in, garbage out, right? So what what are you putting in your mind? That would be, that would be good to kind of do an audit there, right? It's like, what am I really fueling myself with? What kind of thoughts? And it doesn't have to be, I think there's a lot of garbage out there that's over the top optimistic crap. Like it's just, it's not rooted in reality either. But I think it is about finding quality things that you can read and think about things that challenge you. And then I'm also a big fan. Sometimes people ask me, you know, what's my favorite book or what would you recommend? And I'd say, take that six hours and just shut up and listen to yourself. Go meditate. Go spend, go spend that time that you would have spent over a week actually listening to yourself. And you may want to run away 
So it's like, can you find ways to distract yourself from yourself less, like to really come back and get to know more of yourself? Because those voices, those spheres, they're acting, they're, they're on you 24 seven. If you can get to know them, get to become friends with them, learn to expect them to show up when you're talking to that woman that you want to be with or going in for that job interview. I think we're in a much better footing to come back to this more integrated place that we've been talking about today. I like that. I look back at my own life and I, when I think about all the times that I made significant change, one of the first things I had to do is question, what are the stories that I am telling myself about myself and why? And I think the second part of your answer really focuses on that, of that stillness that sometimes we need, whether that's meditation to really listen to what are the narratives that we are producing ourselves about where we are in life today, and then trying to undo some of those, at least the negative ones. I think this is a time, especially during the pandemic, and we're slowly trying to recover from this recession, where people are questioning their lives. And certainly there are a lot of young men out there who are not sure what direction their life should take. This book will make you dangerous is a good place for them to start. Trip, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Can you tell us what's up next in your life? And if people want to contact you, where can they find you on the internet? The best place to find me is uh, my website, triplinear.com. And then wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to the New Man podcast. We've got, you know, we've been doing that for over 13 years. We've got millions of downloads there. So there's a lot of information there. I do teaching individually, you know, give, giving information. And then you can also listen to some of the interviews that I've done. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Trip Lanier. That's a wrap. Thank you, Doc. So as you all know, one of the greatest parts of the Earn and Invest podcast for me is interacting with you, the community. There's several ways to do this. One is through our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Another is to go to the earn and invest website, earn and Or you can hit me up on social media. I am on Facebook as Doc Green. Also on Twitter as at earn and invest and Instagram at earn and invest. I got a recent instant message on Facebook from Colin Hostetter, and he wrote, Doc G, love the show. I've been listening for a bit now. You occasionally mention how you used to sell art. Have you ever done a detailed description on the show about the venture? It's something I've kicked around and haven't known where to begin. So this is a fun story, and I've told it here and there on social media and on the podcast it pretty much started when I was a resident in Washington University in St. Louis. My wife and I bought our first house, a townhome. It was a horrible buy. We knew we were only going to be there for a few years, but housing prices were good. We had no idea what we were doing. We did a doctor's loan, which is a no-money-down loan on this townhome that we knew we'd be living at for probably two years at most. But either way, we bought this townhome. And the one thing I noticed right away is there were a huge amount of empty walls. So I had to figure out how to fill those walls. And we were at a local mall. And I walked into an art gallery and I immediately fell in love with the artwork. I really liked these big, beautiful, figurative paintings very colorful. There were a lot of different artists I like. My wife is Iranian, and I had found a few Iranian artists. And I really thought, boy, I'd love to have this stuff on my walls. But there was a problem. 
When you go to an art gallery and you look at the art, almost everything is in the thousands of dollars. It's really hard to find something that's affordable. So you can always go out and buy prints, which are cheaper versions of some of the same artists. But I really liked the way the original artwork looked. So what I did is I started shopping around. And this was back in the early 2000s. We were just starting to use the internet more and eBay was new. So I was looking on eBay and I started finding some of these artists that I loved, the ones that I saw in the art gallery, but the artwork was being sold for, let's say, 50% of what I found it for in the art gallery. And this intrigued me. So I shopped around and shopped around and I found that there were three or four major sellers who were selling this artwork at a discount. So I could have just bought it right there, but it was still pretty expensive, especially on a resident salary. I didn't have much money. So I got online and I started emailing all these sellers and I emailed the four or five I could find and maybe one or two responded and I started a conversation back and forth. Eventually I got on the phone with them and I started to learn that there were some secrets out there. There was a whole secondary art market. So what happened is this. These major painters, the ones that were in galleries, would often hire on with a publisher. A publisher was this group that would help them create their artwork. And of course, they would make original paintings, but most of what they were selling were either what are called serographs or lithographs. These are high-quality reproductions made by the publisher. Basically, they'll make 100 or 200 of a specific image, and the artist will sign and number them. And it's almost considered original artwork, especially with the artist's signature and numbering, because it's a very limited series. So these lithographs and serographs actually were what I was looking at when I went to the art galleries. I wasn't looking at as much of the original paintings and artwork because that was five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. That was way too expensive. But what I was looking at were the one to two thousand dollar high quality reproductions, what generally we would consider original artwork today. So these publishers help these artists make, let's say, 200 different copies of 10 or 15 images every few years. And the publishers then go sell the artwork to the galleries. And the way they do it is they'll set the price, let's say, for a painting at $2,000, and then they'll sell it to the gallery for 50% off, and then the gallery will sell it for full price to the consumer. About a year or two after an artist published a series of images, usually the publisher had sold out maybe 50% of their stock. By doing this, they had already retained all their profits. They really weren't going to make much more, but they were stuck with 100 or 200 of these images for each of the paintings that the painter painted. So if the painter painted 10 different images and made 100, 200 copies of each, and the publisher sold out a hundred of each of those, there was still a hundred images for the 10 different paintings that were sitting around in the publisher's warehouses collecting dust. Now, by that time, the publisher was already ready for the artist to start making new images. Those old images were unnecessary stock. The publisher had really already made their profits. So what would happen is these four or five big buyers would come in, go to the publisher and say, okay, I'll buy your 1,000 images. You normally sell them for $1,000 each. I'll buy each for $100 each. 
But we're talking about deals that spanned hundreds of thousands of dollars because there were so many images in the warehouse. So these secondary buyers would buy them for $50 or $100, a tenth of the price normally for a gallery, a twentieth of the price that the consumer normally bought them for. And I became friends with those big buyers. So these big buyers would buy them for $100 each. I would become friends with them. And then maybe I would buy that same image from this big buyer for two or $300. And then I would go to eBay, put it back up for, let's say, $700. So that's how I got into the secondary art market. Pretty much I became friends with these huge buyers who bought in such a quantity that they got all these excess or extra images for cheap. And then I could get them for a little bit of a markup and put them out on the secondary market. Everyone was happy. The publishers were happy because they were getting rid of their images. The large buyers were happy because they got these huge quantities at such low prices that even if they sold them for a fraction of what they would go in the gallery, they were still making money. And then I could still benefit because there was such a huge amount of margin left to make a sale and to make a profit. I did this for uh, roughly two or three years. I probably bought and sold a few hundred thousand dollars worth of artwork. I didn't make a huge amount of money. Part of the reason was I often sold for just a little bit more than I bought for because for me, it was the joy of the deal. Uh, I probably could have made a lot more money. I didn't stick with it. And part of the reason was that Right when my art business was taking off, I also decided to leave my medical practice in which I was an employee and join a group in which I was a partner. And my responsibilities as a partner were just much larger. I had a lot more things I needed to do daily besides just see patients. And therefore, my time as well as my interest in selling art fell off. So I did this for about two or three years. It was very, very enjoyable. Uh, there were definitely profits to be made. The only sad thing about selling artwork is I had found that when I first went into the business, I had a real joy just from seeing these paintings and having them. I would buy $50,000 worth of original paintings and they would be delivered to my house and I could ooh and ah over them for a few days before I then repackaged them and sold them to whoever was buying them from me. But Something happened, you know, six to 12 months in, all of a sudden I was getting all these wonderful paintings to my house and I no longer really looked at them as anything more than pieces of paper to be sold. So one of the downsides was that I no longer enjoyed the art nearly as much when I was selling it for a profit as I did when I was wandering through a gallery or even hanging it in my own house. Since then... I stopped selling art. I had about 10 or 15 pieces still in inventory that are hung up in random places around my house. I still have quite a bit of artwork here. I enjoy it every time I see it. Some of that joy has returned now that I am not selling it anymore, now that it's not a business. But that is the story of how I became an art maven for a few years, how I played the art market and eventually got out. I hope you enjoyed. It. 
Sweet. That was wonderful, man. I love that. That was so much fun. That was a lot of fun. I hope I hope you feel I always whenever I have a book as part of my prep, I always kind of ask at the end or tell you if there's something major you feel like we left out. We can always have that conversation now. I can splice it in. But my goal is that from our conversation, people can get a real flavor of what the book is about and get interested enough to go out and want to buy it or download it or what have you. So I don't touch every topic, but I really try to kind of focus on some of those big ones to to make a coherent conversation. You rocked it. You did a wonderful job. I've had a lot of these interviews and you're at the top, man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. It was, it was a lot of fun for me too. And I, I think it's really good stuff. Um, I think it's important. And I, I like the fact that you are willing to be a little bit more crass at times, that you are willing to, you know, throw the language around there too, because I do think that is part of the story. It's like, you can own a lot of these things and it doesn't mean you're disrespectful. It doesn't mean you're, that you aren't all those other things, which are sensitive, you can be strong, you can be thoughtful. All of those can go together. And I think we miss that that message as men. Like you can be all of those things. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to be in the room with some really, really smart people, people that have, have way more credentials than I can ever imagine having and realizing they didn't connect with people. And what a waste to have these insights, to have you know, to be able to see and to be able to have, you know, to be able to have all this information, but not really be able to put it in a language or a tone that, that people will gravitate towards. And so I wanted a book that would live on the, on the, on the back of some guy's toilet that he would read every <laughs> once in a while and, and get some depth and meaning out of it. He'd be glad to, to share to it with another guy and not feel like, oh, well, here's my fun world over here. And then here's this serious personal development stuff. By the way, you have a pretty impressive list of people you've interviewed for the podcast. I was looking at some of those names. I'm like, damn, that ain't bad. Been been at it a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, kudos to you, man. That's not always easy. So, As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 